I don't really care why people are taking omega-3s. As far as I'm concerned, if they take it to grow hair, that's fine with me because it's going to do, they're going to do good things all over the body. They're going to do good things for the brain and the heart. Hello, and welcome to the science and the story behind Omega-3, a podcast brought to you by Wiley Companies, where we explore one of the most researched nutrients on the planet. Listen in as global Omega-3 experts and researchers translate the science, reveal personal insights, and share their stories of discovery while navigating the sea of Omega-3 science. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's your host, Greg Lindsay. Welcome back to another episode of the science and the story behind Omega-3, where we talk with experts from all over the world. My guest today is a lipid chemist who is in the trenches of Omega-3 research. He is professor of pediatrics, of chemistry, and of nutrition at the Dell Medical School and the College of Natural Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also only the fourth person to have received both the Osborne and Mendel Award for Outstanding Basic Research and the Robert Herman Memorial Award for Contributions to Clinical Nutrition Research from the American Society for Nutrition. Please welcome to our program, Dr. Tom Brenna. Well, Dr. Brenna, thank you so much for being with us today. We are so excited for you to help us weave together some of the news we hear about Omega-3. But before we dive in, I just want to ask you, you've had a 30-plus year career in lipid chemistry and omega-3 nutrition. What has kept you interested or intrigued by this work? Oh, well, Greg, it's a combination of the, the depth and many layers that the omega-3 story has and a general interest in incorporating very technical aspects of chemical analysis that I can apply to the omega-3 story. So the kinds of things we do in the laboratory tend to be a bit different than what a lot of omega-3 people do. And so we get insights that uh, maybe are not as common. And so there's kind of an endless endless levels of uncertainty and interest that that keeps us engaged over the years. I can always find some other thing to look at and 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 I tend to be a very curious person also. We we've we we usually think of the omega-3 story as uh the kind of stuff we see in the in the in the press with uh, omega-3 effects on cardiovascular disease and a few other things like that and taking fish oil pills or whatever something along those lines. Well, we have applied some of these basic science concepts to, for instance, ecology and understanding whether whether wild birds require omega-3s and, and how well they do in the nest and things like that. That's just really endlessly interesting stuff. So uh, that's what's kept me engaged over the years. And this is not the only thing I do. So uh, it's always fun to come back to it, though. Well, so so you referenced it. So, Dr. Brenner, we usually hear about omega-3s in context of a disease like cardiovascular or a function associated with an organ like neurocognitive development in the brain. Why isn't the big picture or really the whole body emphasized? 
It's a bit of the way we do science. So when a cardiologist does a study and they administer omega-3s and they look at some outcome, a cardiology outcome, so they might look at cholesterol levels or they might look at cardiovascular events, so major events such as a heart attack. They then write up the paper in that context and the press picks it up and it says omega-3s do this or do that for cardiovascular disease. And we tend to implicitly ignore all the other things that omega-3s do. So it, it, it really is an issue that we, that we don't look at the big picture. I mean, I, I, um, at various times, uh, in sometimes in frustration when one sees uh, two or three studies that, that don't come out as, uh, as the way we expect. And, and I, I think, well, people aren't actually studying the important thing. And I say, well, you know, I don't really care why people are taking omega-3s. As far as I'm concerned, if they take it to grow hair, that's fine with me because it's going to do they're going to do good things all over the body. They're going to do good things for the brain and the heart and, and in the joints and, 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 uh, and so forth. So, um, that's a perspective that, uh, uh, people should always bear in mind when they are reading one isolated study. That's a, that's a great point. If we talk about specifics, so EPA and DHA are the key forms of omega-3 in fish, seafood, and fish oil. Maybe you can explain the difference between EPA and DHA. And, and I realize this is just the question that could be an entire podcast, but I'd love for you to give listeners just maybe the basic differences between EPA and DHA. EPA and DHA are two different omega-3 fatty acids. They uh, have different chemical structures, but they're very closely related from a metabolic point of view. One can be converted into another. We know that. But we also know that metabolically there are barriers of converting EPA to DHA and DHA back to EPA. So that's why the two of them um, actually are separate and appear separately in, uh, in tissue and are distributed differently in tissue. They also in tissue have uh, different functions. Some of them are overlapping functions, but uh, they, uh, they, they will appear differently in, in, in membranes and they, uh, and, and they have their own distinct functions. Where is DHA found in the body? DHA is found in essentially all neural tissue. So it's very high in the brain, in the neural parts of the retina, which really is a part of the brain. Uh, it's high in the peripheral nervous system. That is the part of the nervous system that's outside uh, the skull. And it's high in some specific places an example would be the testes. It's, uh, it's high in the testes. Um, those are the biggies. There are other pockets of DHA in various places, but those are the ones that always come to mind. That is fascinating. So, so I'm going to jump to a topic that's been very, very high profile because of Heart Health Month. And that is, we hear a lot about omega-3s for cardiovascular health. 
And I'd just like to understand your opinion of why people got interested in omega-3s for cardiovascular health. If you could maybe give us a little background on how that, that came about. Yeah, so um, b- back when I was an, uh, uh, an aspiring scientist, or uh, perhaps uh, even before that, it was in really the 1970s that a, a, a pair of researchers from uh, Denmark went to uh, Greenland and studied the natives of uh, that area and their cardiovascular disease and found they had very low cardiovascular disease and then connected that to their intake of marine foods, uh, specifically fish and and uh, marine mammals. And they also showed that a very high amount of intake of these omega-3s from fish caused a very high amount of EPA in the blood and that very high amount of EPA in blood and very high relative to, let's say, uh, Americans. And that very high level reduced the tendency of blood to clot. The tendency of blood to clot is closely related to cardiovascular disease. So that was actually the 1970s. And there was a series of four papers, let's say, um, that really got people going on the cardiovascular story. And, And at that time, EPA was the one that everyone was emphasizing for cardiovascular disease. That's gone back and forth over the, the I, I got, I got involved in science probably, uh, well, in the late seventies. And, uh, I was a undergrad and, and, uh, and nutrition major and worked in a lipids lab and, and, and learned about a lot of this stuff. And I've kind of watched it go from, um, EPA being the really good guy to DHA being the really good guy to EPA being the good guy. And it just kind of goes back and forth. People switch between the two and, and, uh, uh occasionally they throw in another omega three called DPA, but, uh, we won't get into that one. At any rate, it's been, it, it, it's kind of been like that. So that's really the origin of the cardiovascular story. There is another part of the cardiovascular story that's relevant, which is the uh, reduction in the tendency of the heart to stop beating upon uh, a heart attack. So we call that a ventricular arrhythmia. And um, th- those events, so, so when, when a person has a heart attack, the, uh, the heart can stop beating. And uh, if a, a shock is not administered, then you get sudden death. And that's why people die of sudden death at a heart attack. Well, it was shown in uh, roughly around 1990 that an infusion of omega-3s could make the heart much more robust to that uh, phenomena. And and that uh, the, that was replicated in human studies afterwards. And so, so there's really two things. One is that you, you don't have as many heart attacks. The second is you don't die of the heart attack uh, as, as often when EPA, DHA are higher in the diet. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Just omega-3 and heart health is such an important topic, and, and I'd love to explore that more, but we have limited time today. So I, so I want to jump to the brain or neurocognitive health, and I know that's a big leap from cardiovascular health, but curious, why did people suspect that omega-3 had a role in neurocognitive health? Yeah, that's a great question, and it actually has a fairly simple answer. Why did people suspect that calcium had something to do with bones? 
because calcium is always found in bones. That's why. So the reason that people thought that omega-3s had something to do with neurocognitive health is that omega-3, and specifically DHA, is always found in brain tissue. And uh, even from the, from the earliest days, the discovery of DHA came from a sample of uh, pig brain, actually. That's where it was first isolated and then characterized. Um, later on, studies in the 1970s among many species, 25, 30, 40 species of animals, found that DHA levels were virtually the same in all species, while other fatty acids are very different, and, they are, and, and DHA levels are different in other organs from species to species. But all species have about the same amount of DHA in their brains. So, okay, that's beginning to sound a lot like calcium, isn't it? Calcium in the bones. You can't make good bones without calcium. You can't make good brains without DHA. So that's what got people really interested in the first place. So, so what is the best evidence then for the role of omega-3 in neurocognitive health? Well, I would cite that first bit of evidence that DHA is always present in uh, neural tissue. And uh, I would second cite what I would call preclinical data. We talk about preclinical data that would be animal studies that um, show that when uh, omega-3s are uh, reduced in the diet, when there's an omega-3 deficiency, you get all manner of uh, neurocognitive abnormalities. Anything you could measure from the biochemical to the uh, running of mazes to uh, sensitivity to neurotoxins to you name it is messed up in the offspring. So if you, if you, make, a, if you make a pregnant animal uh, deficient in omega-3s, you, you, you can look anywhere you want and you find a mess. And so, so that is uh, number one that really says, look, this thing is, uh, this, these omega-3s are uh, critical for uh, brain development. And, and then we have numerous studies that show that adding DHA to, uh, let's say, infant formulas, and that was one of the areas that was studied early on in the 90s, improves cognitive performance in infants. But importantly, also, and some of the most compelling data is on vision, where vision uh, visual uh, development is accelerated in infants. And we think of vision as a separate thing from the brain, but it really isn't. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the neural part of the retina is um, the part of the brain that we can see. We can see it. And it's the part of the brain that's looking out on the world. And so it really is a part of the brain. And, and there are certain aspects of it that can be measured much more conveniently than deep brain structures. And so there's, 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 there's very good evidence on that, in, in, in my opinion, uh, showing that uh, more DHA is associated with uh, faster visual development. A lot of great information so my question, what happens if we do not have enough omega-3 in our bodies? Well, attention has turned in, in recent years away from the early days of what we used to call acute deficiency conditions that is keeping an animal alive and apparently healthy to, uh, to, to simply look at, let's say, in normal activity levels, to uh, considering... Uh, omega-3s as a specific case of a nutrient and their role in both development and neural development is, is not an easy thing to measure uh, and also for the uh, reduction of chronic disease risk. So we talk about that also as a, a, a requirement. 
And um, in 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 recent years, we've uh, come to clarify that omega threes, at least against the background of our current. Uh, we call them Western diets. Let's just say the American food supply, but I think this applies all over the world. It's really beginning to apply in in, in some uh, developing countries. Um, uh, that, that adequate omega three is required for um, for for lowering of uh, chronic disease and for uh, for neurodevelopment for reasons that we've discussed. Dr. Brenna, I read an article recently, and knowing you were going to be with us today, I, I wanted to ask the question, we, we hear about genes. What's known about genes in omega-3? Oh, my. So, Greg, people have been studying genes in omega-3 for uh, several years now. Um, there's a considerable amount that is known about the inter-individual variability in the use and the metabolism of omega-3s and omega-6s because we talk about omega-3s a lot and that's the subject of this conversation but from a metabolic point of view the omega-6s are in there and uh, we we know that among the the strongest influences that the genome has on nutrients and nutrient utilization is actually on these uh, omega-3s and omega-6s as they come into the body. Now, these are still relatively early days. I mean, we, we like to say that we've sequenced the genome, and it sounds like we know everything there is to know about it. Don't believe any of that. We've sequenced a lot of the genome, but but we, we haven't sequenced all of it. We've sequenced the genes that code for proteins we've sequenced but we don't know what a third of those proteins do. We don't know how a lot of them are regulated. We, and, 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 and there's layer upon layer of subtlety about how this all works. And, and, and my head spins when I, I, I read the literature and, and, and see yet another thing that has popped up that affects um, metabolism and points to yet another set of genes that I might have to look at in order to understand exactly what's going on. So let's just say that um, we've got a pretty good idea. In fact, I think it's a lock that some of the most important influences of the genome on uh, human metabolic status and nutritional status operate at the level of these, these omega-3s and omega-6s. Dr. Brown, I think the last question I want to ask you today is there's so many conflicting reports in the news about omega-3. How do our listeners make sense of all this information? Right. So there's a bit of background that, that one ought to think about when you, when, you, when you think about a study. So almost all studies are designed where there's an experimental group and a control group. And, and you, you administer omega-3 to one group or more omega-3 to, to one group and then and none or less to a control group, and you compare an outcome. So that outcome could be visual acuity, it could be depression, it could be uh, some aspect of cardiovascular health. Okay? And your hypothesis typically will be that the omega-3 group will be superior to the control group. Okay, fair enough. What we talk about almost exclusively is we say that the study was positive if it confirms the hypothesis or at least is consistent with the hypothesis that omega-3 
uh, has a positive influence on the, on the, uh, outcome. Or we say that the study was, and often people will apply the word negative when there wasn't any difference. But what that ignores is a very important subtlety that, that never makes it into the, into the news stories, which is that those studies could just as easily find that there's a negative effect of omega-3s. So, so there are really three outcomes. One is positive, one is neutral, much better word, no difference, and one is negative. You almost never see negative. I really have to scan my memory banks to even think of anything that's ever been seen that was negative. So, so one thing to remember is that the studies almost universally are either positive or neutral. Now that points to a positive overall effect. And, uh, so, so, so what you can have confidence in at the very least in reading these studies is to understand that the omega-3s aren't going to do harm. The omega-3s are going to have a positive effect or at least do no harm. And uh, But on net, one expects that there's going to be a positive effect, and there's subtle reasons why that's the case. We've seen a lot of studies, clinical studies, where omega-3s are, are administered to individuals regardless of their omega-3 status. Uh, so uh, this is a little bit, like administering uh, vitamin C to people who are not vitamin C deficient. So if you're not deficient in the in the nutrient, then administering it to you, giving it to you, isn't going to help anything if you're not deficient. I mean, a friend of mine likes to say that uh, in, in frustration over one of these things, he says, yes, it is true that omega-3 did not improve depression in people who are not depressed. So, and, and, and so we actually see a fair amount of that. And so if you have a study where, where half the people have no omega-3 deficiency and half the people do have some kind of an omega-3 deficiency, the ones that have no omega-3 deficiency are going to be averaged in with the others and you may end up with a null result. So that's a subtlety that, uh, that layman, your listeners may not really get, but it really is there. And some of the sages in this field, I, I have in mind um, the, the late great Sheila Innes of uh, Vancouver, Canada, and um, she had uh, wrote several uh, papers towards the end of her, her life that um, pointed out that maybe 10% of people might be deficient for a particular outcome. Uh, but then you have everybody in the, everybody thrown into the group and it just washes out the effect. And so we need to design our studies better. That's actually part of it. Um, and some people are starting to do that. And so when you say, well, I'm only going to measure the people that are in the, in, in the, in the bottom half that come in, in the bottom half of the omega-3 status in my, uh, uh, among my participants. And, uh, and when you do that, you begin to see much more significant effects, actually. So, um, so in that sense, you can think of it a little, a little like a vitamin where, I mean, people think about a vitamin as they, they don't, they're not taking a multivitamin because they think they're deficient in all vitamins. They're, they're taking a multivitamin because they think they may not be getting enough of this or enough of that and it's not going to hurt. So, uh, so I might as well take it. There's a little bit of mindset like that, that, uh, that really does apply. And I think that's a, it's a reasonable way to think about it as a layman. Thank you so much for addressing that question and for summing that up so well and, and for really helping us make sense of all this today. 
I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to come back for another podcast because I feel like we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg on all the great information that you have. Oh, I'll be glad to do that anytime. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to thank you again, Dr. Brenna, and, and thank you to our listeners. And as always, be healthy, be well, and fight the good fight. This has been the science and the story behind Omega-3. Thanks to our sponsor, Wiley Companies. You can find them and more information about our show at wileyco.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Any statements on this podcast are the opinion of the scientific guest and or author and have not yet been evaluated by the FDA. The information we may provide to you is designed for educational purposes only is not intended to be a substitute for informed medical advice or care. This information should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any health issues or conditions without consulting a healthcare professional. If you are experiencing a health issue or condition, we suggest you consult with your healthcare professional. 